faith in the bodily resurrection of Jesus is based on empirical eyewitness testimony. Jesus proved that he is both the promised Messiah and God in human flesh, therefore trust him for eternal life. Welcome to the MANA Bible Lessons Podcast. MANA is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock. students, if you'd open your Bibles to John 20. Paradoxically, the end of 2023, we're almost done with John. Uh, just one more chapter left. We've been here since, uh, I think, October, November of 22. So today we'll look at the last half of uh, chapter 20. Let's pick up the narrative in John 20, verse 19. So when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews... Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. Here's our first principle, so think quick. Jesus, the Prince of Peace, is the only source of permanent peace. Jesus, the Prince of Peace, is the only source of permanent peace. Let me give you the context behind this. It's, it's Resurrection Sunday evening. Early Resurrection Sunday morning, Sunday morning, Jesus appeared to Mary. We talked about that last week. He appeared to a number of the other women who had come to the tomb with Mary. Mary and the other women came to the disciples and says, Jesus has apparently been resurrected. There's an empty tomb. And they thought they were full of nonsense. That's what Scripture says. And they refused to believe him. So later that day, we're not exactly sure when, Jesus had a one-to-one with Peter, who had denied him on Friday night. And then in the early evening, probably around late afternoon before dusk, he spent an hour or two walking with two disciples on the road to Emmaus, which is about seven miles outside of Jerusalem. Luke goes into great detail on that. And they didn't recognize him until he broke bread and then they recognized him. So now he's going to show up for the fifth time on Resurrection Sunday and it's after dark and it's this upper room somewhere in Jerusalem. Ten of the disciples are gathered together. Now Thomas is not there and we're not told why Thomas isn't there, but Thomas is absent. And Luke 24, 33 indicates it's not just the ten there's other followers of Jesus as well. So we're not sure how big this group is, but the emphasis is on the ten disciples. And the doors are locked for security. Remember, the Jewish religious leaders had persuaded the Romans to execute Jesus uh, for sedition, for insurrection. That was the only thing that Rome was interested in. What the Jews did with their religious leaders was none of the Romans' affairs. So the Jewish religious leaders had to persuade Pilate that Jesus was a security threat to the Roman Empire, an insurrectionist, so they they did that, and Pilate agreed to execute him. So the disciples are now afraid that they're going to be next. They're followers of Jesus. Their leader's been executed. Typically, when you execute the leader, you go after the followers next. Even worse, 
there was a rumor circulating that the disciples had stolen Jesus' body from right underneath the Roman soldiers' noses. Well, first of all, grave robbery was a crime, even at that point. And when you embarrass a Roman squadron of soldiers who are supposed to be guarding a tomb, and the rumor is that you stole this body out from underneath their noses, you're kind of on the most wanted list from both Rome and from the Jewish authorities. So if you knew that you were an enemy of the state, for those of you who've seen that movie a number of years ago, believe me, you'd be behind locked doors as well, just like them. So they're in the middle of this room, they're whatever they're doing, and suddenly Jesus appears. I mean, instantly. It's almost like he just materialized, like Star Trek, you know, when you materialize and dematerialize. And they were terrified. John doesn't mention how Jesus enters a room with solid walls and closed doors, only that he did enter. John's obviously stressing the supernatural nature of Jesus' entry into the room. I mean, Jesus had passed through the grave clothes. He had passed through this rocky cave hewn out of a rock, the tomb. He'd gone through limestone. So he certainly can pass through solid objects like walls and doors into the room. One more proof of his resurrection is supernatural power. It's, there's a great deal of ink that has been spilled trying to describe what Jesus' resurrection body was like. We do know that in the 40 days after his resurrection, he appeared 10 times, at least 10 times, that's recorded, five of them on Resurrection Sunday itself. This is, a, this is number five tonight. Scripture, interestingly enough, I was thinking about this week, and I thought, I wonder where Jesus was when he wasn't present with the disciples. I mean, he's now got a resurrection body that is apparently localized, but apparently is not constrained by space and time in any way, shape, or form. wonder where he was. He hasn't ascended yet. Scripture doesn't tell us. You can ponder that when you wake up this morning at 2 o'clock. So he's not constrained by space and time. He does have a real physical body, but his body seems to be far more than just physical. Earlier this evening, remember, he's with the two disciples on the way to Emmaus, and they're talking, and they don't recognize him, and they're sitting down, and he breaks the bread, and he disappears. Literally dematerializes instantly in front of their sight. And now, a few hours later, he instantly appears in front of the sight of these ten disciples and the rest who follow him as well. Now, 1 Corinthians 15 gives us some ideas. It states that at the return of Jesus, the believer, you and I, are going to receive a body like his. And that body will be imperishable, glorious, powerful, spiritual, just like Jesus' body. If you want to be encouraged when you wake up with creaks and groans, I'll give you a couple of verses that you can put your hopes on because they're promises from God. Philippians 3.21 says, quote, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. 1 John 3.2 says, beloved, now we are children of God and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. 
we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. So Jesus is going to give us a resurrection body designed to live forever in heaven, and it will be freed from the pains and constraints and aches and groans of our current sinful bodies here on earth. Now, we're not exactly sure what our resurrection body will be capable of, but we do know something beyond comprehension. Jesus will make us like him. And that is a concept that is really beyond our limited understanding, but it is phenomenal promise that Jesus in his infinite power will make us like him. And we have a little picture of what that's like by looking at him and his resurrection body now. So Jesus materializes into the room. The disciples are frightened, and his very first words are words of peace. I would have condemned them for abandoning me. I would have said, you guys are finally all here. Where were you Friday? You disappeared, right? He didn't do that. He said, shalom, peace be to you. That's her traditional Jewish greeting. It means much more than just the absence of conflict. It means wholeness. It means serenity. It means unqualified well-being. Now, when, when a human being says, peace be to you or shalom, I'm wishing peace on you, right? I'm wishing. When Jesus says shalom, he's not wishing. He's granting. He's giving. He's ordaining that you will experience supernatural peace. His supernatural peace, he's the source of peace, he's the prince of peace. And he promised his disciples in the past peace, and along with that would come tribulation. John 6.33 says, These things I have spoken to you, so that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take courage, I have overcome the world. Later on, John 14, we're now in the, in the farewell discourse. He says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. Tribulation means opposition. It means persecution. God's people are always going to be opposed by the world system that follows Satan. What Jesus is saying is, I'm going to give you internal peace in the middle of external conflict. I don't know if there's a lot of peace in your life or external conflict in your life. One of the um, realities of the holiday season is it almost never lives up to our expectations. We expect Christmas to be over the top. And if you've ever seen a Christmas special, it's never real. Nobody gets indigestion on these Christmas specials. You look at the table and you're going, y'all should be sick based on what's on the table, but y'all look good. The makeup is always just fine. Everybody's happy. I mean, there's a little spoofers, but, you know, y'all get together at the end and it's happily ever after. You ever had a Christmas like that? <laughs> seldom. Seldom. So we're going to have external conflict in this world, Jesus says, I'm going to give you my internal supernatural peace. By the way, the world's peace is not reliable. It depends on circumstances, and circumstances change by the moment. 
Jesus said, my peace is permanent, my peace is eternal, and it comes about by being in a reconciled relationship with me because I've paid your sin debt on the cross and reconciled your relationship with the Father. And on the basis of that gift of peace through forgiveness, Jesus says, stop being anxious. Stop being worried. Stop being fearful. I, God, am all-powerful, and nothing can separate you from my love. Romans 8. So why are you afraid? Point number one, Jesus is the permanent Prince of Peace. He gives us permanent peace. John describes this meeting, this first contact with them in the first couple of verses, and this is paralleled in Luke. Luke 24 is almost the exact parallel passage with a couple of minor variations. Let's take a look at that. Luke 24, 36. While they were telling these things, he himself stood in their midst and said to them, quote, peace be to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought that they were seeing a spirit, your translation might say ghost. And he said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. While they still could not believe it because of their joy and amazement, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. Here's our principle. Faith in the bodily resurrection of Jesus is based on empirical eyewitness testimony. Let me say that again. Faith in the bodily resurrection of Jesus is based on empirical eyewitness testimony. What's Somewhat amazing is the 10 disciples who have been with Jesus virtually every day for more than three years don't recognize him. They're having trouble recognizing him. Apparently, his instant appearance led them to believe this is not a tangible body because tangible bodies don't just appear and disappear, right? They thought he was a spirit or a phantom of some kind. Seeing is not always believing, by the way. We can be fooled. And so Jesus says, well, let's conduct an empirical examination. See my hands and my feet. What is he looking for? Look at the nail holes. Look at the scars, right? I am the same Jesus that you saw crucified three days ago. And the scars prove that this is the same body. The risen Lord standing before you today on Sunday is the same Lamb of God that was sacrificed on Friday, and you saw me then, and you see me now. Even more, he says, don't trust your eyes, touch me. Touch me. I have flesh and bone like you do. And by the way, you have something to eat. You know, so you give them something to eat. Spirits don't consume tangible food. Jesus has a physical body that consumes tangible food just like you and me. John picks this up in John 20, and he says, And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. The disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. Here's the principle. 
The Lord Jesus Christ commands every believer to go and proclaim that peace with God is possible through the gospel. The Lord Jesus Christ commands every believer to go and proclaim that peace with God is possible through the gospel. Text says when the disciples got it, they understood that it really was Jesus, the risen Lord is, is the Lord of all creation. It says they rejoiced. Why? Because if Jesus can conquer death, he can conquer anything. If you're master of life and death, the Roman authorities, the Jewish authorities, all the opposition in the world is not a problem. They're finally understanding they're dealing with God, not just the Messiah. And before the cross, remember Jesus had promised them that they would sorrow, but he would turn their sorrow into joy. When he shows up in the room, they're in a state of acute depression. They've been following him for three years. He's made these promises to them about what's going to happen, and then he is executed. What happens to all our hopes? Swirl in the drain, right? So when he comes... He completely changes their paradigm, their window on the world. John 16, 20, Jesus is saying in a farewell discourse before the crucifixion, truly I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will grieve, but your grief will be turned to joy. Therefore, you too have grief now, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice and no one will take your joy away from you. He's saying, I'm going to be crucified tonight. This was Thursday night, right? I'm going to be crucified, and you're going to grieve. You're going to lament. The world who hates me is going to rejoice. Satan's going to have a party. The Jewish religious leaders are going to think they got rid of me, etc. He says, you're going to grieve, but your grief will be turned to joy. And when I see you again, he's predicting this meeting, your joy will be Permanent. No one will be able to take it away from you. So the joy that Jesus gives is an eternal life relationship with him. Nothing in all the creation can separate us from his love. And then he, John gives his version of the Great Commission. All four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, plus the book of Acts, record a version of Jesus commissioning his disciples. Clearly, it's crucial. It's universal in scope, and it applies to every follower of Jesus. And now John gives us an abbreviated version. We're used to the Matthew 28 version, fairly extensive. John abbreviates that, and he simply says, As the Father has sent me, I also send you. In other words, he says, My mission that the Father sent me on is the model for your mission. So the church's mission, you and I in this room today, our mission is to act like Christ acted when he was on planet Earth. What is our mission? Preach the gospel, baptize, make disciples, teach, plant churches, feed the hungry, heal the sick, right? visit those in prison. We are to behave in our mission, in our ministry, the same way that Jesus did. So Jesus carried out his Father's will. He depended on the power of the Holy Spirit, and we must do the same thing. You say, well... Jesus was sent, yes. God the Father sent Jesus from heaven to earth. That's called the incarnation when he was born as a baby, right? 
The purpose of the incarnation was the atonement, to pay for the sins of the world by means of his death on the cross. Now, Jesus has finished his mission. He has gone to the cross. He has paid the sin debt for the world, and he has now risen from the dead, and he says, I'm now passing the baton to you and you and you and you and you, and every believer throughout history is to carry on my mission on planet Earth. We no longer belong to the world. He sends us into the world with the mission that peace with God is possible through the gospel, the good news that Jesus Christ died for the sins of the world. And receiving Christ by faith produces peace, produces reconciliation with God. I think in the Christian community, we take that for granted. We have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And after a while, I think we just get used to it. Well, of course, God and I are friends. We're not enemies anymore, right? Because of what Jesus did. You have a lot of friends that don't have that assurance. You have a lot of friends that in their heart of hearts, they're terrified as they get older because they know they're leaving here, but they don't know where they're going. Or they look at their own behavior and in their heart of hearts, they go, it ain't going to be a good ending. I know enough about me to know that. They may give you a lot of smoke and dance and all that other stuff. At the end of the day, they know that. That peace with God through Jesus Christ is a great, great, infinitely great gift. Don't take it for granted. Don't take it for granted. Now, Jesus says, your job is to carry out my mission on planet Earth, but you're going to need power to do that. You're going to need supernatural power. That's why he says, receive the Holy Spirit. He breathed on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. This is the same word for breath as Genesis 2, 7, where it's, God's talking about Adam. And he said, God breathed into his nostril the breath of life, and man became a living soul. So the idea is that life comes from God's breath. The word for breath is spirit or wind. Um, it's clear that Jesus' breathing did not impart the Holy Spirit to them at this time because Jesus said, the Holy Spirit's coming, but only after I go to the Father. After I ascend to heaven, I will ask the Father and he will send the Spirit to you. We know that 40 days later, just before his ascension, Acts 1 records that he told the disciples, go into Jerusalem and wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit. Ten days later, we have the accounts of Pentecost in Acts 2, and the Holy Spirit did come upon them. So this receive the Holy Spirit needs to be seen, I think, as a pledge. Scripture would say a pledge or a promise of a future gift because that promise was fulfilled at Pentecost. Now think about it. Did anything major change in the disciples' behavior after Jesus breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit? They stayed locked up for another week. There was no power in their lives. They're still terrified. Actually, they go back to their old occupation of fishing. They go back up north. Peter is not yet restored to service. Thomas wasn't even at this meeting. And they're still comparing themselves with each other. Peter says, what about this man, John? What's he going to do? You know. So it's clear that they don't have the Holy Spirit at this time. It's equally clear that when the Spirit does come at Pentecost, Acts 2, it changes the world. They preach and witness with clarity and power. Acts 2, 3, 4, thousands come to faith in Christ. They respond to persecution with joy and courage. As a matter of fact, the power of the Holy Spirit was so vast at that period of time. Today, same thing, nothing has changed. 
the Roman Empire was conquered by Christianity by the 3rd century. The most powerful political entity on planet Earth was completely transformed by the Christian faith within 300 years. So the same spirit that filled them fills you. We have the same power. We just need to exercise it by faith and obedience. Now, verse 23 says something very interesting. Jesus is making this promise to the church, to the ten disciples. He says, if you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. Obviously, we're talking about forgiving sins. This passage, this verse, has been in, uh, misabused or been abused by some in spiritual leadership to believe that God gives human beings the power and the authority to forgive sins or not to forgive sins. Jesus does not give any individual or any collection of individuals the authority to forgive sins. No pastor can forgive your sin. No priest can forgive your sin. No pope can forgive your sin. No guru can forgive your sin. No created being can forgive human sin. Only God can forgive sin. Because all sin is ultimately against him, right? Ultimately against God. Let's suppose John punches Jim in the face. And I walk up and I say, I forgive you, John, for punching Jim in the face. Yeah, I don't have the right to forgive John because I didn't get punched in the face, right? I I haven't been offended. It's not my place. Who can forgive John? Jim can forgive John because he's the one who's been wronged. All sin is against God, the perfect creator, so ultimately only God has authority to forgive sin. But we represent God on earth. We are God's agents on earth. And we can declare what the Bible declares. We proclaim the gospel and the power of the Spirit. What can we declare? We can tell people... If you repent and you believe the gospel and place your faith in Jesus Christ and surrender to your life for him, I can declare that you will be forgiven because God's word says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is the Lord and believe in your heart God raises from the dead, what? You will be saved. On the other hand, if we present the gospel then and they refuse and reject the gospel, the church And you as individuals can declare that your sins will not be forgiven because that's what God's word says. So we can declare what God says with authority because he is the authority who can choose to forgive or not to forgive. John 3.18 says that. It says, he who believes in him, Christ, is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. See, the reality is everyone's born in sin, all of us. We're all hardwired. Our spiritual DNA is rebellion. God alone can forgive sins, and God alone can retain sins. And he has given human beings the free will choice to either accept or reject his offer of salvation. So the church can declare what God says in his word. Don't be afraid if someone confesses with their mouth, Jesus is Lord, does it say your sins are forgiven? Not because I said so, but because God said so.
You have the authority of the Word of God to do that. And we are responsible to present the gospel to people with that degree of clarity. You know, it's easy to say, well, if you accept Christ, your sins will be forgiven. It's a lot tougher to say, and if you don't, they won't. If you refuse to repent, your sins will not be forgiven. You will stand before God for judgment. Our culture doesn't like to hear that. That's reality. If there is no judgment, then you don't need a Savior. But because there is judgment, we need a Savior. Decisions determine destiny. In this case, eternal destiny, and that's why the Lord commands us to go and bring the gospel, the good news, that peace is possible, but humans are responsible to respond to that. Verse 24. But Thomas, one of the twelve called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails, and put my finger into the place of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Here's the principle. Bring your doubts to Jesus and ask him to open your heart to the truth. Bring your doubts to Jesus and ask him to open your heart to the truth. Now, Thomas is an interesting guy. Didymus, by the way, means twin. So Thomas is a twin. We don't know who the other twin is, but we know he is a twin. He's obviously loyal. He's obviously courageous, but he's pretty pessimistic. He reminds me of Eeyore. For those of you that know Winnie the Pooh, you know, Eeyore the donkey. This guy ain't Tigger. Not Tigger at all. I mean, he's, he's very courageous, though. When Jesus wants to go back to Jerusalem, where the, the Jewish religious leaders are planning to kill him, Thomas says, let's go back with him and die with him. I would say he's probably not an optimist. Not a highly motivated, you know, I'm going to make you feel good about yourself. But we do know he's very honest. Jesus tells his disciples, I'm going to go and prepare a place for you, and you know where I'm going. And Thomas goes, huh? He says, we don't know where you're going. How are we going to know the way? Now, the truth of it is, every one of the disciples were thinking that. Thomas is the one who's got the courage to say it, ask the question, right? So he's, he's not an optimist, but he's very honest. He's very courageous. I think Thomas was probably born in Missouri. No, kind of the show-me state. So the disciples say, we have seen the Lord. And he says, no, you're nuts. I don't know whether he thinks that they're deluded, delusional. He says, I won't believe it until I see it or touch him, which means you ten are not reliable witnesses. I don't believe you. So he's got to suffer another week, Right? of unbelief and fear, the question has been asked, why was he so doubtful? Well, he might have been so traumatized by the crucifixion that he finds it impossible to believe that anybody beaten beyond recognition like our Lord was, had a spear thrust into his heart, could possibly be alive. He says, I need empirical verification before I believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Now, we actually, I think, do Thomas a grave disservice. We call him Doubting Thomas. I think that's probably way too harsh. Remember that none of the disciples initially refused to believe. Not one of them. 
The women came, Mary came and says, he's risen from the dead, and they said, no way, you're crazy, you're speaking nonsense, we don't believe it. The only time they believed was last week, right? We're now a week later. They only believed when they saw Jesus face to face themselves, resurrection Sunday evening. Thomas just wants to see what they already saw. What is interesting here is it's very, very clear that the disciples are not gullible people who want to believe the resurrection. As a matter of fact, they don't want to believe the resurrection, even with all the evidence, which means their subsequent testimony about the resurrection is even more believable because they were not interested in believing. They're like hard data people. Show me the data. Otherwise, I'm not going to believe. So, what happens eight days later? Verse 26. And after eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach here with your finger and see my hands, and reach here with your hand and put it into my side, and do not be unbelieving, but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. Here's the principle. Ultimately, followers of Jesus trust God's word as the authority through which they understand God's world. Let me say that again. Ultimately, followers of Jesus trust God's word as the authority through which they understand God's world. So the time frame on this is eight days. That's one week if you include, count both Sundays, right? So Resurrection Sunday and a week later. The disciples, even though they've seen Jesus, the ten, last week, they're still terrified. They're still on lockdown. And John is making it clear that Jesus' appearance this week is exactly like it was last week. They're all together on lockdown, and he shows up immediately and says the exact same thing. Peace be to you. Peace be with you. And then Jesus immediately zeroes in on Thomas, and he says, Thomas, I know what you said last week. And he quotes it to him, right? Now, if Jesus heard what Thomas said, he must have been present, even though invisible. Or he was just reading his mind. Either way, Thomas is going... Uh, this is supernatural, yeah, divine. It's called Jesus is revealing I am God, if you didn't know that already. And then he says, see my hands, put your finger in the nail holes, put your hand in my side. Thomas, you trust in your five senses. You need empirical verification, utilize your five senses to verify my resurrection. And based on that, then stop being an unbeliever and start believing the truth. In other words, Jesus wants Thomas to believe that he, the resurrected Messiah, Jesus Christ, is God in human flesh. And Thomas sees Jesus, hears Jesus' words, and he gives a personal confession of faith when he declares, my Lord and my God. Now, this confession is the high point of John's entire gospel. Jesus has been doing signs all through the gospel to demonstrate that he is God in human flesh, the promised Messiah, and now Thomas sees it and affirms it, that Jesus did rise from the dead, and that he is, in fact, divine. Why? 
Who rises from the dead? Unless you have divine power. Mere men don't just rise from the dead. So the resurrection is proof that Jesus is God with power over life and death. And Thomas understands that now, and he worships Jesus as God. And all those who follow Christ are obviously going to make the same confession. This is really the end of John's book into John 1.1. What does John 1.1 say? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. So he's talking about the eternal existence of Jesus the Son, eternal God in human flesh, and the eternal existence into eternity future of the same. At the end, the beginning, John makes that declaration. Thomas declares that at the end. So Thomas believes that Jesus is God because he's seen proof of the resurrection with his own eyes. Now that's not only true of Thomas, but it's true of all the disciples. When did they believe? When they saw him. A week apart, but they both saw him. All of them. Now Jesus knows that physical evidence for his resurrection is not always going to be available. Why? He's going to ascend to heaven, and people are not going to be able to see him physically or his signs. The reality is probably less than a thousand people actually saw Jesus physically after his resurrection. He was on earth for 40 days, probably closer to 600, but let's just say less than a thousand people. Everybody for the last 2,000 years has come to faith in Christ by believing the infallible word of God that records the eyewitness testimony of those who were there and saw him. We have not seen him, right? Jesus said, blessed are you who have not seen and yet believe. The Bible knows nothing of blind faith. One of the things that makes me crazy is the world, Satan, one of his primary targets is to say, all faith is based on no evidence. In other words, faith by definition means no evidence. It's blind faith. Scripture is, knows nothing of blind faith. Biblical faith is always based on facts, evidentiary facts that you can measure in space and time. Here's why. The same God that created the world is the same God that documented the Word. Same God created the universe, same God wrote the Bible. So what God says about his universe is the final fact because he's the creator and the author. The creator of the world, the author of the word, same God. So the word of God and the world of God agree because we have one God for them all. Here's where we get into trouble. Human understanding of God's world is progressive. That's called, we discover things as we study the world, correct? Science progresses. We know more now than we did 500 years ago. I'll give you an example. The Bible records that there was a very complex Hittite civilization that existed in Canaan for several hundred years. The problem Archaeology could find no evidence of a Hittite civilization. So the archaeologists in the scientific community said, 
Obviously, Scripture is false. It's just Jewish mythology. There is no Hittite civilization. Well, lo and behold, archaeology uncovered a massively complex Hittite civilization. Duh! Science is progressive. We don't understand everything now, but the Word of God that created the world declares the truth. Whether you have empirically discovered it yet or not, we know that the author of the creation is also the author of the Word. So that what he says is truth, and you can take that to the bank. Ultimately, people of faith trust what God says in his Word, and they view God's world, world through the lens of his Word. Heaven and earth will pass away, right? The world will pass away, but what? My Word will not pass away. Don't ever get caught into the binary trap that it's either science or Scripture. Science and Scripture agree. I'm talking science, not scientism. That's a religion in itself. So Jesus says, those who believe in me without physically seeing me are blessed. It doesn't mean you don't believe evidence. We've got evidence. The resurrection is massively documented. And the word blessed means more than happy. It means acceptable to God. Hebrews says that without faith, it's impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that God exists and that he rewards them that seek him. So Thomas has moved from intellectual assent to volitional submission. He now says, my Lord and my God. Thomas is submitting himself to his lordship. John now closes this chapter by summarizing the reason he wrote the gospel in the first place. Verse 30. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Here's the principle. Jesus proved that he is both the promised Messiah and God in human flesh. Therefore, trust him for eternal life. Jesus proved that he is both the promised Messiah and God in human flesh. Therefore, trust him for eternal life. Now, John writes his gospel because after Jesus went back to heaven, everyone who believes in Christ believes without first-hand evidence. They believe on testamentary eyewitness evidence, the written records of reliable witnesses who did see Jesus firsthand. So let's suppose you're writing a biography of someone who is already dead. In that case, more data is always better because data is all you have. They're not here. Let's suppose you're writing a biography of a living person. What you really want is enough information to introduce that living person to the audience who's going to experience that living person themselves. Like you're introducing them and they're going to make a speech. John says, since Jesus is alive, I'm only going to give you enough historical information that the Holy Spirit deems necessary to introduce you to the Lord Jesus. Now, John does not believe in deceptive advertising. You know where you... You promise one thing and, and you get something else. John's very upfront, transparent about his purpose in writing the gospel. He says, I'm writing the gospel and I'm calling you to exercise faith in two things. One, that Jesus is the Christ. 
Christ means Messiah, which means the promised one, the anointed one, the, sent, the one sent from God to pay the penalty for the sins of the world. And Jesus not only claimed to be the Messiah, he proved it. He did many, many supernatural signs. He fulfilled massive numbers of Old Testament prophecy that predicted his coming. Matter of fact, next week, Lord willing, we'll take a look in John 21. John writes that Jesus did so many miracles that the world itself could not contain the books that would be required to describe them. We have no idea how many he did. It is very, very probable that disease and illness were pretty much banished from the nation of Israel during that three-year period. There are literally implications of thousands and thousands of healings and exorcisms. We only have a very limited sample of that in the Gospels. And these signs were verifiable because they were done in front of witnesses called the disciples. John has only selected seven signs. Eight, if you include the resurrection. And he calls them signs because they point to something else. And these divine miracles, these supernatural signs point to the fact that Jesus is God's promised Messiah and that he is God in human flesh. By the way, the Jewish nation, they did not have a belief that Messiah was God himself. The Jewish nation only had a theology of monotheism. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Only one God. Jesus comes along and says, I'm God. And they're going, uh, we don't have a theology for the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, so you've got to be blaspheming. Kill him. The Gospel of John documents that Jesus is Messiah and God in human form, both. And then John says in verse 31, here's what I want you to do with that data. Jesus came to earth to reveal God to humanity, to save people from their sins, to reconcile their broken relationship with God. Now that you know that Jesus is the Messiah, the sent one, now that you know that he's God in human flesh, you should do something with that data. You should place your trust in him to forgive your sins and surrender your life to him. Why would you do that? The result of believing that Jesus is both Messiah and God incarnate, the outcome of that is eternal life. The average person looks at eternal life and says, pie in the sky by and by. You know, I'll, I'll experience eternal life when I die. Not true. At the moment of salvation, you experience eternal life from that instant onward because you now have the divine life of God living in you. God the Holy Spirit takes up residence inside you at the moment you surrender your life to Christ and you have eternal life here and now. And you say, well, it ain't heaven. Well, that's true. You still have you. <laughs> With the flesh that's broken down and the world and the devil. So we have conflict and battle inside ourselves, as Pastor Eric talked about this morning. But eternal life is God living in you. Right now through the Holy Spirit, who indwells every believer. And John says, I've written all my gospel to demonstrate that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the Son of God, so that you can exercise faith in that fact 
and experience eternal life, both in the present earthly experience of life and in the eternal one in heaven. Jesus said, I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. He's talking about eternal life. God living inside you. You don't have to go to some planet like Yoda in order to experience that. The Holy Spirit, God seeks us, and he came out, and he takes up residence in us forever. Okay, let's summarize, then I'll ask Al to come and do prayer and praise. First, Jesus, the Prince of Peace, is the only source of permanent peace. This world is not going to give you permanent peace, and neither will your antidepressants. I'm not saying you shouldn't take them. I'm saying put a limitation on what you expect them to do, right? That's just part of the territory. Number two, faith in the bodily resurrection of Jesus, battle of the resurrection, is based on empirical eyewitness testimony. Our faith is not blind. It is informed by fact, reality. Number three, the Lord Jesus Christ commands every believer to go and proclaim that peace with God is possible through the gospel. That is the gospel. God and man can be reconciled through the finished work of Christ on the cross. And every one of us has the obligation and the privilege and the responsibility and the command to go and proclaim that in the world in which we live. Number three, four, bring your doubts to Jesus and ask him to open your heart to the truth. This I probably should spend more time on. We all have doubts. It is not a sin to doubt. Who do you talk to when you doubt? Go to the source. Say, Lord, I don't understand this. I'm struggling with this. I see this in your word, and I see this in your world, and I don't reconcile it. I'm having trouble putting these together. They, they seem to contradict. Bring them to the Lord and ask him to show you. Ask him to teach you. He will. Five. Ultimately, followers of Jesus trust God's word as the authority through which they understand God's world. If you want to understand God's world... Put on the glasses, the eyeglasses of God's word and look at the world through the lens of the word and you will have an accurate framework within which to understand it. And lastly, Jesus proved that he is both the promised Messiah and God in human flesh. Therefore, trust him for eternal life. By the way, your friends, your family that don't know Jesus, they want what you've got. They do, but they're being deceived by the devil who says, you're going to have to give up all your fun. You've got to give up all your hangovers, man. You've got to get up feeling bad in the morning. Oh, isn't that bad? You know what I mean? Right? But they're deceived because we were deceived until the Holy Spirit opened our eyes. Anyway, I know this is a lot to chew on. There's more to come. Thank you for reading ahead. Next week, will Lord willing, be in John 21. I love you all. Now that you know, do Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at Manna, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to Podcast at gmail.com and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today. And now that you know, do.